Welcome to HR Fresh Take, brought to you by Philly Sherm. Stay fresh with the latest HR trends impacting the Philadelphia region. I am your host, Dr. Joe Vasquez. The term quiet quitting went viral during this past summer for its counter-narrative to the hustle culture mentality. Our workforce is experiencing mass burnout due to the challenges over the past few years. The traditional level of engagement is hard to be expected from our talent when we're not focusing on the true problem. In this episode, we'll dive into insights from our guest, Anna Greenwald, founder and CEO of On The Goga. Also joining in the discussion, our co-host and producer, Kayla Blanks, and co-producer, Shakima Appleton. Welcome, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. So excited. I know. We're so glad that you're here, especially on a topic like this that's on the forefront. Yes. Um, But before we get started on the actual subject, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I'm Anna Greenwald. I'm the founder and CEO of On The Goga. We like to refer to ourselves as a future of work tech company. We are a corporate wellness company that helps employers of all shapes and sizes to bring their well-being events, challenges, benefits, communications, all into one place on a platform that employees actually love. So that's what we do. And that means that, yeah, we work with a ton of different types of organizations, not only to connect them with the right content, the right benefits that actually help employees to gain some of the skills that are crucial for staying engaged at work, which I'm sure we'll talk about today, but also to help HR teams put together a really custom benefit stack to make sure that employees are connected with the right resources and that they're building a culture that makes sense for their team. So talk to a lot of different HR professionals, um, a lot of different wellness leaders about a host of topics and quiet quitting has been coming up a lot recently, but as I'm sure we'll discuss in this conversation, not really a new concept. No, not at all, right? Yeah. So in that vein, could you tell us a little bit about what is quiet quitting? Let's define it. The title of today's episode is The Myth, right? Right. So let's break it down a little bit. Let's level set and make sure all of our listeners are on the same page. Okay. What is quiet quitting? I love this. So I wanted to start with this Investopedia definition I found <laughs> because it really captures the um, intensity with which people are having this conversation. Okay. Investopedia says, quiet quitting refers to doing the minimum requirements of one's job and putting in no more time, effort, or enthusiasm than is absolutely necessary. It just feels so like... I, I'm always a believer too, as well, of like pushing people to go above and beyond. So this quiet quitting myth has always just rubbed me the wrong way. Cause I'm like, if you want people to go above and beyond, pay them more money or increase their job description, you know? But- right. And I think, you know, when I was thinking about our conversation today, I had this goal that quiet quitting, a lot of this conversation has to do with who's doing what wrong. And I think that if we can start to shift this conversation to shedding light on why quiet quitting matters to both employees and employers, that can help us to kind of get to and address the root causes and issues of quiet quitting. And to your point, Kayla, the definition of quiet quitting, right, seems to be, are people going above and beyond? But in a lot of the discourse around quiet quitting, you hear people talk about leadership being afraid of, my employees aren't showing up and doing their jobs. And so we're really having two conversations, right? One is, are 
my employees doing the jobs they've been hired to do. And one conversation is, how can I help my employees go above and beyond? And those actually need to be two different conversations. But in this quiet quitting discourse, I hear them kind of getting lumped together. See, I didn't think about dividing that because I think in terms of the employer and they're just like, well, they're not doing their job. Mm. And uh, so that's what we're thinking about quiet quitting. And in terms of the concept of above and beyond, it's more of mission driven Mm -hmm. and the reason why someone wants to work for your company. So I didn't think people lumped that together. Yeah, I think it's interesting because both of these two things are management challenges, right? One is, are my employees coming in and doing the job that I'm asking of them? And how do I know? Right. And I think that's a big fear I hear in this conversation is leaders saying, oh, God, my employees working from home. How do I know that they are working? Right. Which really that to me, there's so much compassion we can have for that leader because that's hard. But it's always been hard. Right. Because I'm sure many people here listening know that if you were sitting in an office eight hours a day, five days a week for most of your professional career, you were not actively engaged in working eight hours a day, (laughs) five days a week, right? I'm a stellar employer. Right, right. And I think that, you know, this is an interesting part of the conversation because when we think about quiet quitting, one of these pieces is we actually need to be empowering leaders with the skills and the tools they need to measure success of their teams. And if the only tool you have is but in chair time, as we like to call it, right? That is not an effective tool. And so I can understand and empathize a lot with leaders that are feeling like, what do I do, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I'd love to dive more into that. I think it's really interesting to then hold that next to this idea of a leader looking at an employee and saying, well, I know they're here and maybe I even see that they're getting their tasks done, but I don't feel like they care, or I don't feel like they're extra engaged and all that. And that is, to your point, Joe, like a whole nother piece of the conversation, which is how do I help my employees feel a sense of meaning and purpose? Mm -hmm. And how do I hold space for the fact that even the best employee who loves their job and feels a sense of purpose is not going to be working eight hours a day, five days a week? Yes, right. Yeah. How do we measure someone's enthusiasm and even that they want to do this work and for us? Right. I mean, these are all great questions. I was I was thinking about this, right? Because if we're thinking about these two different aspects of it, right? Part one is are employees doing the job they were hired to do? And part two is are employees going above and beyond that job, right? So are employees doing the job they were hired to do? There are a couple of things that management has control over, which I always like to point these things out, right? Because as human beings, I like to say leadership, employees, these are just funny words for humans, right? (laughs) As human beings, we want certainty. We want to feel a sense of control. We want to feel a sense of agency, especially coming out of the climate that we've been in for the last two and a half years. Mm -hmm. So when we think about how can we give these leaders who are struggling, right? They're human beings trying to reach their goals. How can we give them the tools that they need to address these things? Let's look at controllables. So what are the controllables for how do we know that the people that we are bringing into the organization are doing the job that we are hiring them to do? First of all, a really awesome place to start is your talent acquisition strategy, 
right? If you're asking yourself, do I have people in the role that can do the job I'm asking of them? Ask yourself, what is your hiring strategy, right? Are you getting the right people in the door? How are you writing your job descriptions? How are you assessing what qualifications are really necessary, not just to do the job title, but to do the job within the nuances of your organization? And also, to your point, do they want to do it for us? What in your job talent acquisition hiring process is signaling to you this person will have a sense of meaning here, will have a sense of purpose. So I think talent acquisition is a really interesting piece. And then we get into equipping leadership with the skills and tools they need to measure productivity differently, right? So when I think about this, first of all, there's a whole part of this conversation we could have about what type of productivity are we talking about for the role? That's going to be my question. I was like, okay, what does productivity look like? Yes. You know, and of course it's going to change various levels of organization. But it's going to be super easy to figure out productivity for a data entry person, right? Or someone who's in your call center taking calls, right? That's going to look a certain way. But as you get higher up in those levels of organization where that works a little bit less tangible, right? True, because we're always looking at output as part of productivity. And there's some things that there's no real measurable way to to think about output. And traditionally, and I will argue, most of our organizations have not traditionally put a lot of um, emphasis on people leadership as well and measuring that. When we haven't traditionally measured people leadership or seen that as something to be considered during a performance improvement process, how do we consider that? Is that productivity? Is that not? Are we just going to talk about KPIs? Yeah, no, it's it's really an interesting question. And this is a question I think that people leaders throughout an organization can be asking themselves are, for my team, what are the types of productivity that drive meaningful business outcomes, right? Thinking about a few that we see across industries at On The Goga with a lot of our clients. So to your point, Kayla, this idea of there is a type of creative productivity, right? Mm. For a developer, for a marketing professional, are you coming up with innovative ideas? Are you problem solving in innovative ways, right? And that type of productivity requires a very different set of conditions than another type of productivity we see a lot is just presence, right? There are certain jobs where you just need to be physically present, right? If you are a sandwich artist at Subway, right, you need to be behind the counter, to productively make a sandwich. So like you need yeah. to be there. Can't do that virtually. Right, exactly. <laughs> you can't do that hey, virtually. My you, sandwich making app says that I can yeah, be doing that. Right, right. Okay. You might be able to conceptualize like the next really amazing $5 foot long, like some sort of like tuna tartare whatever. And you might be able to do that at 11 p.m., right, and sleep until noon. But if you need to be making a sandwich, you need to be behind that counter. And so there's creative productivity, there's presence, there's network productivity. So I think about this in sales or in fundraising, right? You have those employees where their productivity is, can I be out at an event meeting somebody? Can I increase the network of our organization? There's literally fiscal productivity. Am I generating dollars? Am I making a sale? There's efficiency. And so 
If listeners take just one thing away from this conversation today, let it be that when we're thinking about quiet quitting and we're worried about employees not being as productive as possible, if we can gain the skills as HR professionals to ask ourselves, what type of productivity is most relevant to this role, that brings a huge amount of value into our organization because the answer to how we solve for that problem differs very widely depending on, you know, what the specific productivity is that we're looking for. So you bring the right people in, (laughs) you have to understand what type of productivity am I looking for? And then Kayla, you mentioned something that I think is really important, which is that HR teams have evolved so much, right? Over the last couple of decades, but I feel like they've exponentially increased their innovation through the last couple of years We need to make sure that leadership are giving HR teams time to do the work around creating different systems to measure performance, training leaders in how to empower their employees that takes additional time on top of benefits administration and compliance and all of that. So that's a big piece too that management does have control over, which is making sure that there's enough staffing and enough bandwidth on the HR team to put some of these Mm -hmm. management styles and tools into place. For me, I think that there are a lot of folks out here who would be willing to go above and beyond. I think sometimes we see someone and we put them in that quiet quitting category as if they are a poor performer or they are, you know, just they don't care, right? But we've gone through a lot in two to, what, three years now, I guess, almost going into Right. I feel like I'm burnt out. I feel like I'm perpetually burnt out at this point. But now you want me to go above and beyond at the same time. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because I know burnout and wellness within the workplace is like your bread and butter and like something you're super passionate about. A hundred percent. So you're right. This is definitely the part that I'm most passionate about because like I want to go back to what you just said, which is really the basis of all of this, which is quiet quitting is a symptom of employee burnout, period. And what's so fascinating to me about this is that we have been talking about this. I found a Harvard Business Review article from 2004, but they didn't call it quiet quitting. They called it presenteeism. Hmm. I don't know if you guys remember that trend, but that's what it was. But presenteeism did a much more effective job, the writing about it, the conversation about it, it really emphasized that presenteeism is the effect of a decrease in productivity when someone appears at face value to be healthy, but they're dealing with whether it's a diagnosed mental health issue or what 77% of American workers are dealing with right now, which is burnout, right? Burnout is in the clinical research, the side effect of unmanaged chronic stress. And to your point, we have not emerged out of the emergency mode. And that is true for leaders, for companies, for HR teams, and for employees in their personal and their professional life. And so if we are ready as an organization to ask ourselves, how do I re-engage my team after a long period of stress and challenge to start picking things up and moving forward? There's a lot of interesting kind of questions we need to be asking ourselves at that pivotal point to even figure out 
if we're self-honest as an organization, are we ready to ask our employees to do that? Or do we need to radically accept the fact that many of our organizations are still in emergency mode, Mm -hmm. right? So is the phrase a problem? Because Mm -hmm. presenteeism sounds systemic. It's like like absenteeism Mm -hmm. versus quiet quitting is blame. Yes. And it's the individual. Mm -hmm. And so we don't want to study that because we're just basically saying you're quitting on us. And that's not, you know, for lack of a better phrase, the American way. Yeah. Right. And I think that's such a great point because if we think about it, right, quiet quitting, the whole conversation, the discourse about quiet quitting came out of a research study that showed a slight gap, right, between like how productive we technically should be as a, as a country and how productive we are. Quiet quitting was made up by journalists and the people having this conversation, right? And so it's very helpful to start looking at this as two different things the data of what is, and the conversation about that data. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think this idea of resisting the hustle culture mentality is so important because if we just all hop on the bandwagon, I I I think HR buzzwords are hilarious. <laughs> I my think, favorite. Yes, there's so favorite. you know there's so many of them. I just wrote an article on LinkedIn about um the tribrid workforce, right? Yes. It's like what is oh, a tribrid? Work- something new again. Yes. <laughs> so yes. you know these buzzwords. I think it's important as HR professionals for us to be able to parse out. Okay, what is the difference between this buzzword and the reality of the situation? And what power words have so much power. What power or what additional kind of context is this word giving to the reality of the situation? To your point, quiet quitting puts the onus on the employee. And I think that that makes a lot of sense because it's really convenient for leadership. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. But I also want to validate the humanity of leaders that when you are in a state of panic and stress and hardship, you want to look around for someone else to blame. So I like to take this whole conversation, put all the pieces on the table, say, all right, it makes sense that you want to call it quiet quitting. It makes sense that employees are saying, you know, screw that. I'm, mm-hmm. I am just doing what I'm hired and paid to do. If we can kind of be honest about that natural conflict, we can start to say, oh, There's actually a common goal here that we all have, which is creating healthy, functional workplaces where employees are well enough and feel psychologically safe enough to show up and do their absolute best work. That is everyone's common goal. So let's use this racy kind of word to start the conversation, but let's quickly, as quick as possible, shift into, all right, we actually do have a common goal here. So how do we work towards a better future of work? So you talk about the go above and beyond and getting paid what you for what you do, right? Um, we know that it's a little different when we think about our BIPOC professionals and we start to think about our women because they have been experiencing burnout as a, a norm. Mm-hmm. What do you say to, to, to those conversations? Because it's already, it's not equal in that way. Absolutely. And I think that you cannot have this conversation about engagement, right? Which is really what the conversation of quiet quitting is about without looking 
at not just the individual, but trends between demographics and groups, right? Because we can see in quiet quitting, there's a whole nuance to this conversation. Not only are women and BIPOC professionals more likely to assume that burnout is a natural state, but it's actually riskier for them to quiet quit, right? Because if you are a woman or a BIPOC professional, we are treated differently in the workforce, right? As a woman, I'm treated differently than my male counterparts in the workforce. And so the consequences for me showing up to a meeting and not engaging are very different than my male counterpart because the perceptions of why I'm not engaging are very different. And so if employers are trying to have this conversation and make sweeping statements that, you know, no one should be quiet quitting and everybody should be held to the same standards and X, Y, Z, we are completely ignoring an entire part of workforce dynamics that not only need to be addressed, but are at play, whether or not you're talking about them. So I think it's important, especially for women in BIPOC professionals, A, to feel validated when they're listening to a podcast like this or reading an article about quiet quitting and thinking, if I did that at work, that would that, not fly. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Like, that would yes. not fly. That's true. And you should feel valid in that. And from a leadership perspective, the approach in my mind remains that you need to be looking at this through the lens of humanity within your organization. So I think all of these kind of questions around the different experiences people are having, how do we get them to go above and beyond? Is it even ethical to ask someone to go above and beyond? Comes down to HR professionals understanding a few key aspects of what motivates people to go above and beyond. And the first one, which is tied to this understanding of the weight people carry, um, is just a validation of work-life balance, right? One of the key motivators for people to quiet quit is because there uh, was a recent study done that showed that 38% of people are at work for the money and 31% are there for familial duties and obligations, to fulfill familial duties and obligations, right? Those are some of the top reasons that people are at work. If you try to look someone in the eye who's coming to your job and say, but you should be here because of our mission statement. <laughs> They're going to laugh at you, yeah. right? Yeah, that's right. We're exactly. Yeah. So that is, I mean, let's just be honest. So much of this, you know, conversation around people manage, it's a lot of buzzwords. It's a lot of jargon. It's a lot of concepts. Look your employees in the eye and tell them, hey, I know that this is a job. And if I gave you a million dollars today and a cabana in Bali, you would not show up to work tomorrow, right? If we don't understand that and treat people with the respect of, of you know, seeing them eye to eye, we're not going to get anywhere. In fact, it might feel counterintuitive to leaders, but coming to your employees and saying that begins the conversation. If you don't validate that to your employees, you've already lost because they think that you are the most out of touch person in the world who does not understand them. I think when uh, the in terms of the pandemic, a lot of our colleagues have discovered other interests um, and had the time to explore those other interests. So in a sense, sometimes the quiet quitting or 
or slight disengagement could be that I now want to focus on a little bit more time on something that I've discovered that gives me life, gives me joy, gives me helps in terms of my passion. That's so starter. You know? <laughs> I have not baked a successful <laughs> loaf in the entire in the entire time of the pandemic. Now I can bake some mean cookies, yes. but don't ask me to make bread. <laughs> I know people who garden, I have a black thumb. It's not it just didn't happen for me, like the usual. Um but I also think that um something like doing this because for me this is something that brings me joy. And I had the time to kind of look and conceptually, it's like, how can we create a podcast for our organization? And and now I just want more time, even though I'm back to work. How do we give employees space? And how do we say, well, it's not necessarily that you don't like your job, but you may want more time to do something that you also love. Yeah. As human beings, I just want to validate that it's okay to want that space and it is necessary for human thriving, right? We need that space. We need downtime. We need rest. We need room to explore. And so if you're listening to this and you're like, wouldn't that be nice? It would be nice. And as employees, our number one source of power is our decision of where to work. Mm. We can influence the entire economy through supply and demand by choosing to work for employers that value these types of human-centered workplace designs. If you're listening to that and thinking about it from the leadership perspective where you're like, you know, oh, that's out of my control. Oh, that's a lot, right? Number one, let's feel validated. That is a lot. This is, and so is so many other business challenges that we face. None of these things are easy. If they were easy, we'd all run businesses, right? And (laughs) so it's looking at this and saying, this is a serious and important issue, just like supply chain management strains are a serious and important issue. And there are things we can do, both short-term and long-term, to make these changes. Let's say that you're hearing this and you're like, well, it's a four-day work week is not a possibility. Remember, it's not about hours worked. It's about creating flexibility for your team. So you can start to look at policies like what are your standard meeting hours during the day? Just setting organizational policies around when meetings are permitted to happen can make a huge impact on the flexibility that someone has to plan their day, right? Instead of saying, hey, I want to see you in the office from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., you say, hey, I want to see you either working or virtually available from this is what we do at On The Goga, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern time, right? You are expected to work outside of that. Uh, we have a, a, a four-day schedule. So for us, you're, you, you know, being available and working outside of that is really important. But if someone needs to go take their child to daycare or take their pet to the vet or they just need to take a nap, right, and someone works better later be at night, amazing. right? That's yes. Take a nap. Right. <laughs> if someone works better in the evening versus someone works better in the morning, you give them the ability to do that. You're actually managing people individually for their strengths. And so maybe it's looking at your meeting schedule. Maybe it's something as simple as making sure that you're setting policies around how long your meetings could be. Maybe it's things like How are we managing projects? This is a huge one, and it sounds so simple, but a lot of organizations still manage projects through meetings. 
right? Mm, yes. And so you have to be at the meeting. That's the only way to move the project forward. Using asynchronous tools like task management softwares, I could talk about Asana, Monday.com for my entire life, but any organizational tool that helps people organize and move tasks and projects forward without having to come together for a meeting you're giving people time back in their day. And there's also a lot of inclusion aspects and benefits to having both asynchronous and synchronous, you know, project planning and project uh, implementation. So think about what are the policies you do have control over that give people the opportunity to have flexibility in their day and in their time. Well, I do appreciate uh, that uh, particular point. And it's actually a great point to wrap up our podcast. I think so. Everybody thinks so. I All right, good. I mean, like uh, like Anna said, we could probably talk more and more about <laughs> asynchronous tools because I believe schools are doing it right now. Uh, they had to do it, you know, during the pandemic, and now they're still continuously doing a hybrid model in terms of in person and asynchronous. So we can learn a lot from colleges and universities that are doing that right now. Um, however, Kayla, would you like to ask our guests this question? Yeah, so to wrap up our episodes, we'd love to kind of, you know, take it back and be a little bit more casual and ask you, if you weren't doing what you're doing today, what would be your dream job? What is your like... The like, alternate universe. Yes, a multiverse, <laughs> you know, other lane. What would you be doing? Okay, so I've thought about this question a lot because <laughs> as an entrepreneur, I'm constantly thinking about what could I do in my life? I would love to build and operate a national kind of like sprinkling of tiny houses that you could oh. rent, right? And each one would have a, like a little different theme, a little different vibe. You, you could, you know, put them all on the map, go to everyone. But I think creating wonderful experiences is something that brings me a lot of joy. Um, my dad's an architect. And so one day in the future, I'd love to partner with him and and make these little tiny homes across the country. That's so much fun. That is so, <laughs> that is great. so, so much fun. Interesting. <laughs> She'll have a whole catalog and say, "What kind of house right. would you like?" I just imagine this like solving homeless like homeless problems. It's it's gonna create better economies for us because people don't have to have big homes. We can all downsize. I think there is an. I think there's a show then, called yeah. Tiny a, House yes, Living. Yes. It's a tiny home. Yeah. It could be mobile, tax it into your car. I do, I have seen that on the highway. Yeah, uh, and we're just just like, well, we're just moving all of it. Right. Yeah. And and what it does is it gives you flexibility. We hope you got some ideas for yourself and your organizations. Kayla, did you know that members of Philly Sherm get exclusive podcast content? That's right. They can get it through the member portal at phillysherm.org. But what if you're not a member, Dr. Joe? Not a problem. They can visit our website at phillysherm.org slash membership to get more information and to sign up. Also, folks can connect with us on social media like Instagram and LinkedIn with our handle at Philly Sherm or by searching hashtag Philly Sherm. Well, with that, thanks for joining us. This is HR Fresh Take.